0: Well, in the spirit of worship that we have been in already, would you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Continuing on with the events of Pentecost Sunday. Is that day that Jesus, from his exalted position as Lord and Christ, poured out the Holy Spirit upon his disciples? They immediately began to speak, to proclaim the mighty works of God in foreign languages. The people around them gathered, they assembled, thousands of them. To hear what was going on. And so Peter on behalf of the apostles stands up. And he explains that what they were hearing. These mighty works of God spoken in each one of their understandable languages. This was a sign. Just like we read from Joel 2 at the beginning of our service. That the last days. The era of salvation before the final day of judgment. Has come. That Jesus has ushered in these last days of salvation. He preaches the gospel about how this Jesus that the Jews had crucified was the Messiah that God had not only resurrected but exalted as Lord in Christ with all authority in heaven and on earth. So after preaching that day at Pentecost, we see what happens next starting in verse 37. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? This is the inspired, inerrant, sufficient, authoritative word of God. And so let's read it with hearts of worship and hearts of submission. Because these words come with the very authority of our Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, for uh, several months now, uh, we have been asking each other the question who's your one? Who's one person that God has placed in your life who doesn't follow Jesus? Who's one person in your life that you can be praying for, for their salvation? who's one person that you can be looking for opportunities to share the gospel with. And it's been encouraging to see how the Lord has used this uh, in the life of our congregation, even in the midst of um, all of the things that are going on uh, in our world. Uh, I've, I know of uh, at least um, a couple of people who have told me uh, stories about how their one has come to faith in Christ, uh, as a result of their prayers and sharing the gospel. And so it's really an encouraging thing, uh, not only to see the souls impacted, but also to see how uh, it's gone to impact our prayer lives and all sorts of different things. This question, who's your one? Well, so let me ask you a question this morning. What are you going to do as you've been sharing the gospel with your one, you've been praying with your one? What are you going to do when you're one? comes to you and asks you a question. What do I do? I understand the gospel. I'm ready. I want to believe. What do I do? What are you going to say? Because if you if you really are if you are really are praying for people to come to faith in Jesus, if you are sharing the gospel regular regularly with people sooner or later, someone Is going to ask you that question. What do I do? That was the the question that Peter was asked. Here on the day of Pentecost. What shall we do? They hear the gospel. They hear how their sin. They had sinned against God. And they were cut to the heart. They were broken hearted. Over the fact that they were sinners against God. And they knew they needed to be saved. And so they asked Peter. What shall we do? Well this text Shows us, it teaches us some really important truths about the gospel. Specifically, it teaches us some really important truths about what it looks like to come to faith in Jesus and to begin a new life as part of his family. If I had to sum up this text in one sentence, I would borrow the inspired words of verse 21 Everyone. Who calls upon the name of the Lord. Shall be saved. Let's unpack this truth. That everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Shall be saved. And let's walk through this text. uh, By asking and answering four questions. First of all. How does a person receive salvation? Second. Who may be saved? Third, what are we saved from? And fourth, what are we saved to? As we answer these questions from the text, I believe we will see that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So, first of all, how does a person receive salvation? Well, so again, after hearing the gospel, the crowd responds to what they've heard from Peter in verse 37. And they say, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter gives them a really simple answer there in verse 38. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. To repent is to turn in your heart. We're all born Pointing towards sin. Pointing in opposition to God. When we're pointed in this direction, we're depending on ourselves to make it in this life and the next. We're trusting in ourselves, or at least in a false savior, in order to make it. But to repent is to stop resisting God's righteousness and instead to turn and receive God's grace. It's to stop opposing God and to start receiving from God the grace that he wants to pour out into us through Christ. It's to turn away from depending on myself or a false savior. And it's to turn to Jesus and place my faith solely in him to save me. Repentance is a change of heart. Baptism is a picture of that change. In baptism, it's a picture of resurrection. When a person is baptized, they are buried in water. And then they are raised up out of that water, symbolizing death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism is also a picture of cleansing. When a person is baptized, they are confessing, my heart is Dirty, and I cannot make myself clean. I need someone else. I need Jesus to cleanse my heart, to make me new, to wash me clean. In this command, this instruction to respond to the gospel with repentance, or this command to respond to the gospel with baptism, it's something that is seen throughout. Acts. It's a pattern that we'll see as different Christians are given the opportunity to call people to respond to the gospel. But it, it raises a couple of questions for us, particularly about baptism. One, is the act of baptism necessary for a person to be saved? Second, is baptism necessary for a person to receive The Holy Spirit. Well, let's look at these two questions and consider them. First of all, is the act of baptism necessary for a person to be saved? Well, in order to answer this question, we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2? Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9, Paul says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the answer is no, baptism is not a work That is necessary in order to cause salvation. Salvation is received by faith alone. Well then why does Peter tell them to be baptized? Because it is an outward expression of that heart of faith. Uh, Turn with me to another place. To 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. In this passage Peter himself explains a little bit more about what we ought to think about baptism. In 1 Peter 3, in verse 21, he says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What Peter makes clear there is that baptism, the significance of baptism, is not in the external physical act. The significance of baptism is is what is going on in a person's heart when they are being baptized. Consistently, throughout scripture, we see that this is the case. That God looks at the heart. And what your heart is placing faith in, what your heart is trusting in, to be right with God, that makes the difference between whether or not you are trusting in someone who will save you or trusting in something that cannot save you. So for instance, if a person is being baptized and they have no faith in their heart, then what they're doing is just an empty ritual. Similarly, if a person is being baptized and as they're being baptized in their heart, They are placing their faith in the act of baptism to save them. Then they are placing their faith in a false savior. But if when a person is being baptized in their heart they are trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Then that baptism is simply an expression of their saving faith. So no, baptism is not a necessary work in order to cause salvation. In the same breath, though, we also need to make sure that we are faithful to what Scripture says here. It's not necessary in order to cause salvation, but baptism is still necessary. Baptism is commanded. What we see in Acts and throughout the rest of the New Testament is that faith and baptism are. ...are inseparable. There is not a category in Scripture... ...for a person who has faith in Jesus... ...but who has not been baptized. It, doesn't compu- it wouldn't have computed for the uh, first Christians... ...that someone could believe in Jesus and not be baptized. But here is the crucial distinction. Baptism is not a necessary cause of salvation... Baptism is a necessary effect of salvation. Baptism does not cause salvation. It is an effect of salvation. It is not necessary for my car to move in order to cause the engine to run properly. But, if my car never moves, it's an indication, it's evidence that The engine is not working properly. Similarly, it is not necessary to be baptized in order to cause salvation. Salvation is received by faith alone, apart from works. No works are necessary in order to cause salvation. But faith, saving faith, James tells us, always leads to works. And baptism is one of those that it leads to. It's a necessary effect of salvation not a cause. And so the person with genuine saving faith will demonstrate that through baptism. So the second question then that we are going to ask, and and that this text raises for us, is baptism necessary for a person to receive the Holy Spirit? At first glance, it might seem like that's what Peter is saying here, Uh, but the answer is no. And the reason why is because Peter here is not describing a series of steps, uh, a sequence. He's not describing that. He's describing uh, 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 several things that happen all roughly at the same time. And the reason why we know that is because in other places in Scripture, we actually see these things happening in a different order. So, for instance, in Acts 10, uh, when the Gentiles first believe in Jesus and come to saving faith in him immediately they receive the Holy Spirit, the text tells us. And it's only after they receive the Holy Spirit that Peter then, who happens to be the one with them that day, that Peter tells them to be baptized. So the baptism was not necessary for them to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came as a result of faith. Paul tells us in Galatians 3.14, we receive the Spirit by faith. So no Baptism is not necessary to cause salvation. And no, baptism is not necessary for a person to receive the Holy Spirit. The forgiveness that God promises, the Holy Spirit that God promises, are free gifts received by faith alone. Okay, so, if someone asks you, what do I do? What are you going to say? Should you say, repent and be baptized? Well, that certainly wouldn't be wrong. I mean, that's what Peter says right here, right? So we certainly can say that. Repent and be baptized. But be sure to say more than that. Wisdom would cause us to recognize that because of our fallenness, because of uh, the opportunity of, of thousands of years of of fallen interpretations of the Bible, uh, we need to recognize that there's a whole lot of people in the world who have distorted the gospel to say that baptism is a necessary work to cause salvation. And because of that, we need to be careful with how we communicate the scripture's command to be baptized. We should not assume... That someone understands that baptism is an effect of saving faith. And not a cause of saving faith. So, when someone says, what do I do? Uh, The first thing we need to do is make it explicit that salvation is received through faith, not works. Faith alone, apart from works. So no one can boast. And then, by all means, call them to repent. To turn from sin and trusting in self, and turn to Jesus to receive his grace. And then, encourage them to be baptized, not as a work to earn salvation, but as an expression of that saving faith that will necessarily result from a heart that desires to trust in Jesus. But baptism must always be recognized as an expression of faith in Jesus, who alone did All the work necessary in order to cause our salvation. Second question. Who may be saved? So we've seen how a person receives salvation. Who may be saved? Well, Peter goes on after he has told them to repent and be baptized. And he goes on to tell them why they can be forgiven and receive the Holy Spirit. He says that in verse 39. For, because, the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So God had promised that in these last days, these this day of salvation, that forgiveness would come to all who call on the name of the Lord. He had promised to pour out his Holy Spirit on Every one of his people, every single person who belongs to him. And so what Peter is saying here is the reason why you can repent and be baptized and receive forgiveness and receive the Holy Spirit is because all of these things that God promised are promises for you. God promised it and you can cash in on that promise that he made because the promise is for you. The promise is not limited by time. Peter says that this promise was not just for that crowd that day or even for that generation of Jews. He says it's for your children. In fact, until Jesus comes back, the offer of salvation is open to anyone who wants to receive Jesus. The promise is also not limited to Jews. We see that, as Peter says, it's for you and for your children and for all who are far off. In Isaiah 57, 19, God promised that the gospel would go not just to the near Jews, but also to the far Gentiles. Uh, We looked at Ephesians chapter 2 a moment ago, and in that same chapter... Paul refers to this reality in verses 17 and 18 when he says to Gentiles there in Ephesus and Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off Gentiles and peace to those who were near Jews for through him Jesus we have uh, we both have access in one spirit to the father so Jews can repent And be baptized, receive the forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. And Gentiles can repent and be baptized, can be forgiven of their sins and receive the Holy Spirit. As Joel said in chapter 2, as Peter quoted in his sermon, Everyone, literally everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I think this text ought to prompt us in our hearts to consider this question. Who in my life do I think is too far to be reached by the gospel? Is there someone in your life that you think is just too hardened to be saved? Someone that maybe you don't even bother sharing the gospel with because you know they're just going to reject it. I confess that this has been something that I've been guilty of. Thinking that there's someone too far, so far away from God that Jesus can't reach them. But as I was studying this passage this week, um, I have to confess, I was convicted of realizing that I, I believe... Oftentimes, that someone can be too near to be saved. And here's what I mean by that I've spent most of my life in the Bible Belt. And in the Bible Belt, as you know, Christianity is part of the culture, it's part of the air that we breathe. And so I've interacted with a lot of people who don't know the Lord, but who think they're saved because they grew up in church, because they go to church every single Sunday. And I don't know if you've ever tried to share the gospel with someone who needs Jesus but thinks they're already saved. <laughs> it's really hard to know what to do and how to approach that conversation sensitively. It's really challenging. And sometimes a person is so convinced uh, that it's easy to think, well, they, just, there's no getting through to them. They are so near, they're so close that... Uh, they, you know, there doesn't seem like there's any hope for them because they're already convinced in their own mind. And from a human standpoint, uh, they are a step further back than the person who blatantly rejects Jesus since they're under this idea that they've already been saved. Uh, it's been said about cultural Christians that when you're sharing the gospel with them, uh, you need to get them lost before you can get them saved. But if I'm not careful... I can start to believe that there's less hope for someone who's near than someone who's far. Whether in your heart you find yourself believing that there is someone who's too far to be saved, or whether, like me, you might find yourself thinking that there's someone who's too near to be saved, let this text remind us there is no one that Jesus can't save. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It doesn't matter if you're far, like the son who squandered his inheritance. It doesn't matter if you're near, like the older brother who despised his loving father for welcoming the prodigal back home. You're not too far, you're not too near. You're not to anything. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The promise is for you. We can be confident that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because salvation does not depend on the person who calls on the name of the Lord. Salvation depends on the Lord... Who calls people to himself. Did you see that in verse 39? Peter says that the promise is for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. We can have confidence that anyone can be saved. Because of the power of the God who calls all men everywhere to repent. Question number three. What are we saved from? seen how a person receives salvation who can be saved everyone what are we saved from saving is rescue saving needs uh there's something bad that you need to be saved out of that you need to be rescued from what are we saved from we'll look at verse 40 and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying save yourselves from this crooked generation this crooked generation So, biblically, there's a lot of ways that we can answer the question, what do we need to be saved from? Uh, But in this text, I want to highlight just what Peter says here about what we are saved from. This crooked generation. That term crooked generation might be familiar to you, it comes from uh, Israel right after the Exodus. The generation that came out of the promised land, or excuse me, the generation that came out of Egypt did not enter into the promised land. Instead, they died in the wilderness because of their rebellion against God, because of their unbelief. And so God encouraged the next generation, the generation that did go into the promised land, to not follow in the example of their fathers, to not go with the flow of what they had seen growing up, but instead to reject what God called this crooked generation and instead to trust in God, and to follow in faithfulness after him into the promised land. Well, Peter here draws an analogy between that crooked generation that died in the wilderness and the generation of Jews who were there uh, in the first century, uh, among, uh, uh, from whom his audience came. This was indeed a crooked generation that uh, of Jews that was there. In fact, what Peter says in the... Um, in his sermon, is that these, this generation of Jews was so crooked, they actually crucified the Messiah that their God sent to them. This was a crooked generation. And not only does uh, Peter highlight this, uh, the fact that the Jews had crucified Jesus there in his sermon, he also highlights that the, the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord, the day when God's judgment would be poured out on All who reject God and who rebel against his Messiah, including this generation of Jews. And so, Peter is encouraging, he's exhorting, he's urging people to be saved from this generation. This crooked generation that is on a path toward God's judgment. Surely there was a temptation among these Jews to Keep on going with the flow and just try to add Jesus to the direction that they were already going. But what we see is that to follow Jesus is to let him rescue you from a crooked generation. Paul tells us in Philippians 2.15... Or similar to how he says in Philippians 2.15, we today, ourselves, live in a crooked generation as well. And we need to recognize, as Christians, we need to recognize, as those who are ministers of the gospel, that the call to repent, the call to turn to Jesus, to trust in him and follow him, is a call to stop going with the flow of this crooked generation. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, and uh, we'll look at verses 13 and 14. Jesus says in Matthew seven thirteen, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide. And the way is easy, that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The wide gate is appealing. It's an easy path. It's the popular path. Many find it. Many want to say yes to Jesus without saying no to the wide way of the world. This path is a path that has just enough religion to make you feel good about yourself without having to fully surrender to Jesus. It's a path where... In our hearts, we think we can fit into both the world and into the church. It's a a path, it's a mindset that wants advice without ever having to actually confess their own sin. It's a path that wants help without actually requiring them to change. But this path, the easy, wide, popular way of the flow of this world, this crooked generation... Jesus says, is a path that leads to destruction. Let's not be deceived. You cannot go the way of the wide, easy road of the world and end up at a destination of life. That is a path that leads to destruction. And so when we invite people to Jesus, we invite them to turn from The wide, easy path. Because Jesus did not die to save us simply from the destruction at the end of the path. He died to save us from the path itself. Jesus did not just die to save us from the punishment that our sins deserve. He died to save us from the sin that deserve the punishment. So, we do people a disservice if we allow them to think that they can become a Christian and continue to go with the flow of our crooked generation. No, that is what they need to be saved from. And Jesus invites us into a better way. Jesus invites us to the way that leads to abundant, flourishing, joy-filled, eternally satisfying life. It's not the easy path, and it's not the popular path, but it is better than anything this crooked generation has to offer. So may we urge people, by the grace of God, to be saved from this crooked generation, and to not go with the flow of the world. Lastly, number four, what are we saved to? We saw one of the things that we are saved from. Well, what are we saved to? So back to Acts chapter 2. Peter has preached the gospel. They've asked him how to respond. He's told them how to respond. And we see what they do with his instructions there in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Just like the question, what are we saved from, the question, what are we saved to, can be answered multiple ways from Scripture. Uh, But notice what Peter says here. Notice, or rather what Luke says here. Look at that phrase, there were added that day. Added. Added to what? To the church. To the family of God. There were 120 disciples of Jesus at that time. All of a sudden, there were 3,000 more. And those 3,000 new believers in Jesus were added to the community of faith. The body of Christ. And what we see in the following verses that we'll, Lord willing, uh, look at next week. In verses 42 through 47, as we see what this community of faith is looked like. It was a community that was devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to gathering together, to worshiping together, to fellowship with one another, to sharing with one another, praying together. It was a tight-knit group of people who were needing Jesus together. You know, I mentioned before that the New Testament doesn't have a category for a person who has faith without being baptized. The two just go together. Well, likewise, the New Testament doesn't have a category for someone who is baptized without being a member of a church. The two just go together. One of the sweetest blessings of being a Christian is that when we trust in Jesus, we are adopted into the family of God. A family of brothers and sisters who rejoice with one another, who weep with one another, who pray together, who teach one another, who hold each other accountable, who challenge one another, who encourage one another. Scripture paints God's vision for the people of God with the analogy of a body. A body made up of individual parts connected to one another in a way that they Uh, They can only stay healthy as they are together. A person can be a genuine, real Christian without being part of a church. But what this analogy of the body shows us is that a person can't stay healthy long without being a part of a church. I mean, if I cut off my hand, it's still a real hand. It's a genuine hand. But it will not stay healthy long detached from the rest of my body. And likewise, a Christian cannot stay healthy. Even if they're a genuine Christian, they cannot stay healthy being detached from a body of believers. So when we are inviting someone to Jesus, we need to remember we're inviting them to join a community. Now, hear me clearly. Uh, It might might be, you know, we're, we're here talking about uh, being saved by faith and not by works, it might s- sound like, man, there's a, there's a lot of things we got to remember. Man, you got to they got to become a church member too. That sounds like a work like that. You don't need. That's not necessary. That's not something that they have to do. It's a good thing, but, and, and maybe that's what you hear. But I want to encourage you to turn that on its head and recognize that inviting people into the community of faith is not a burden. It is a blessing. In fact. Um, if I can use uh, kind of a, a man-centered vocabulary, it's kind of a selling point. Um, I, I, uh, I, I heard an uh, uh, author and speaker, you might be familiar with Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, she's written a couple of books. Uh, she's, she's spoken at different things. Um, she has a, a, a lot of great helpful advice on hospitality and things like that. But part of her testimony is that before she was saved, uh, she was a practicing lesbian. Uh, in fact, she was a, a very vocal advocate for uh, the LGBTQ revolution and all of these things. And she was um, she was saved as a result of hearing the gospel uh, through a family that befriended her. And um, anyway, she she saved. She um, and and uh, as a result of that, she she repented and she's uh, turned from that um, from that way of life. But one of the things that she's since done is helped Christians with understanding what it means to reach people who are part of the LGBT community. And I use that word community because it's a word that, that she uses. And what oftentimes, um, if, if you've not been around that, uh, what we don't realize is that uh, that's, there really is a, a sense of community among people who, who identify that way. Uh, because uh, as society... Uh, Has often rejected that. There's this sort of like minority uh, uh, bond, community, uh, finding each other. And what she said is that oftentimes when Christians will share the gospel, invite them to repent of of the sin of homosexuality or the sin of of some sort of sexual immorality, for them it's not just, oh yeah, I have this little sin that I'm repenting of. It's I'm abandoning my community. And so one of the things she talks about is that The way that a church can minister to someone who's coming out of that is by showing them, look, we're not just inviting you to abandon your community and go on this life alone of trying to follow Jesus by yourself. No, no, no. We're inviting you into the family of God. Look at the blessing of the gospel that you can have brothers and sisters who are your uh, faith family, who can encourage you and support you. So this is not a burden, this is a blessing, because we need Jesus and we need each other. We need help from one another as we try to navigate this narrow, hard road that leads to life. We can only experience the fullness of the blessings that Jesus purchased for us as outlined in Scripture. If we're doing so in an intimate, committed, faithful community of believers. So much of the blessings that Scripture talks about of life in Christ is only experienced with our fellow believers. We need each other. And it is a tremendous blessing that we are saved to membership. In the body of Christ. So. When you're one. Or someone. Says to you. What do I do? I'm ready? I understand the gospel. I want to follow Jesus. I want to trust in him. What do I do? Tell him or her. Joyfully. To repent. To turn from trusting in Himself to turn from trusting in herself. To turn to Jesus. To stop resisting God and instead to receive God's grace. Encourage him or her to be baptized as an expression of that heart of faith in Christ alone. Whoever they are, they are not too far. They are not too near. They can be saved. This promise is for them. They can be saved out of the crooked generation that we are surrounded by, and they can be brought in to the body of Christ. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray together. Father, what a blessing it is That we can call on the name of Jesus. Lord, that we don't have to do anything to earn our salvation. Lord, we only have to turn and receive what Jesus already purchased for us. Lord, what a gift that anyone can receive this salvation. What a gift that we can be saved out of this crooked generation. And what a gift that we can be ushered in to... The kingdom of your beloved son. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged as those who have been saved by the blood of Jesus, who have been brought into this family of believers. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged by all that Jesus has purchased for us and the fact that it is a massive gift of your grace. And Lord, I pray that you would increasingly give us opportunities to share this good news with Everyone in our lives who does not know you. Lord, I pray that we would have confidence from your word. To invite anyone and everyone, no matter how far, no matter how near. To come. To turn from sin. To turn from trusting in themselves. To turn from the way of this crooked generation. And instead, to turn to Jesus. And receive his grace, his acceptance, his righteousness, his love, his mercy. Lord, we invite them into our family of faith that you have brought together for your glory, that we may build one another up until the day that we see Jesus face to face and experience eternal, abundant, perfect, renewed life with people from every tribe and language and nation around the throne, worshiping you. We love you and praise you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together. Grace,
1: Indifferent to the cost You looked upon my helpless state And led me to the cross And I beheld God's love displayed You suffered in my place You bore the wrath reserved for me All I know ever come from me. O oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose, and let my song forever be my only boy.